Now, as we've been going and working through 2 Corinthians, you know, the title of the sermon series has been Upside Down. And the thing that we've been trying to pull out every week as we go through 2 Corinthians is to point out to us how absolutely contradictory the statements that Paul and the apostles are making versus the wisdom of the world or even our own inclinations. As, as we look at these things that Paul is encouraging us to do, encouraging us to lean into, they're not the things that we naturally are inclined to do, and they're not the things that the world around us does at all. So looking at power in weakness has been one of the things that we've looked at the most. And last, actually two weeks ago, I think, it was uh, we kind of hit the summit peak of this book, if you ask me, and that's chapter 12, verse 9, uh, which is a really important text. Uh, for me or any Christian, and it says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." One of the great promises for every believer who has ever lived is right there. And I hope that we'll see more of that as we go through the same in chapter 13 as Paul closes his letter. But before we start with the scripture for this morning, let's ask for help, as we always do. Bow your heads with me real quick. Father, we come to your word with great need. We seek to hear from you, and we trust that we will. As we read together, your word among your people, you have brought us and bought us with a price. And we ask that your spirit would now empower us to hear the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. All right, let's begin in chapter 13, verse 1. All right. Verse 1 says this. All right. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So Paul's establishing his coming visit, and he's setting things straight on this visit, right? So he's preparing to come and set things straight. He's already made the case uh, for his authority in the book as an apostle, and he's made the case that these newcomers uh, who are teaching and are casting doubt on the gospel teaching that Paul left them are false apostles. He's been making this case all the way through. So now he mentions that every charge will be and must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what he's actually doing is quoting Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, that we read in the law. And so what he's doing here, though, he's actually he's falling into that format to set up a trial of sorts. And he's going to come in as the judge. And his authority, again, to be that judge, not rests in his power, but he says his authority rests in his weakness, and the power comes from Christ, not him. 
So that's why once more he's using this same terminology of his weakness and Christ's power. In other words, he's not coming to make judgments in his own name. He's coming to make judgments in Christ's name. Now ultimately, right, this is for the protection of that church itself. As we saw in chapter 12 last week, there is apparently still impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality among the church in Corinth. In addition to that, there are false apostles who are spreading a false gospel that needs to be corrected. So as he said twice now, this is going to be his third visit, and the church still has rampant problems. So we have to ask the question, though, as we're reading through this, what, what judgment is Paul going to bring? What is he talking about? He's talking a big game here, but what is he actually going to do? What exactly is he going to do with these people in the church who are still unrepentant or going against him? So we find this actually in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5. He addressed this topic specifically, but in 1 Corinthians he addresses it regarding a specific individual. What he's describing there is what we could call church discipline, or the other term is excommunication. Now the word excommunicate uh, bears a lot of baggage, right? Uh, that has some really heavy, heavy baggage that comes along with it. Mainly that comes from traditional like Catholic church, where it means something a lot different. Uh, what is biblically mandated in 1 Corinthians 5 and here are also based on Deuteronomy. So excommunication is, is simply removing someone from the fellowship or member of that specific church. They are no longer than a person in good standing with that body. So when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which I trust you'll look up later, he says, deliver them to Satan. That's the words that he uses there. Those are some really strong words. But what he means and what he's saying is removing them from the body of believers. Because within the body of believers is Christ's domain. But outside of that is, is Satan's. So he says to deliver them to Satan. Being removed from the body. So this, to be, to be clear, is saved for only the most unrepentant and grievous situations. This isn't something that should be wielded over people's head, and this is where the baggage comes in with excommunication. Right, earlier on in the, in the Catholic Church, salvation was tied to the sacraments. The sacraments were only delivered by the church, and if you were removed from the church, then you couldn't receive the thing that they believed would save you. And so that was used as a weight over people's head to keep them in line. That's not what the Bible actually is teaching. So the whole point is that immorality and unrepentant sin in a church should be judged by that church because that defiles that whole church. The idea is if you let unrepentant sin go unaddressed in your church, you're acting unlovingly, not only to the sinner or the person in the wrong, but to everyone in that church. By not addressing it, you validate it. You, in all practicality, say, it's okay. Now, if you've raised children, you know this to be a fact, right? A toddler, or a teenager for that matter, may try to push the envelope on something this as, as simple as saying no to watching a television program or, or whatever it is. But they may push the envelope on something that you set a boundary on. They've trespassed that boundary. Now, you as the parent have a responsibility to come and enforce the boundary that you set. 
right? And, and if you don't, and we all know, because we've made this mistake before, I have, uh, if you don't enforce that boundary, right, and they know that you know that they know that they've trespassed that boundary, good luck enforcing that boundary in the future, right? You've basically validated that action by not addressing it. Well, the same is for the family of the church. In that sense, excommunication, right, is really the only church discipline uh, that we see biblically mandated in the New Testament. We don't put people in stocks, in other words. But by removing someone from the fellowship, you show both the severity of the sin to the offender, and you also protect the family of the church from being poisoned within. Now, speaking as an elder, this is something you never want to do. This is something you absolutely never want to have to do. This is absolutely a last-ditch effort, an end-of-the-line kind of thing. But there are cases where it has to be done if you want to lead and protect your church well. And I think that we can see clearly here in chapter 13 that Paul does not want to do this. He does not want to have to handle it that way, and that's why he's using such big and harsh language before he comes. He's giving them another chance to turn around. He's giving them another chance to repent. He's giving the body another chance to call that person or those people to repentance. He wants and desires that he should find everyone walking rightly. That's his entire tone here. No, I won't back down, but please, please don't make me do this. So he continues in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met this test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. So here is Paul's, again, a plea for them to come to repentance. He says, test yourselves. Those who judge themselves will not be judged. Now, this is a serious test for all of us, right? Here and elsewhere in the Bible, it encourages us to reflect and see if we are really living the life of a Christian. And this is something that each one of us individually has to come to again and again when we wrestle with the text, when we read these things. It's calling out to us, are you living as a Christian? Now, if we're honest... Sometimes this hurts, doesn't it? Why sometimes if we, if we take a self-reflective look at our life, it stings. We see that we aren't living the way that we should. But God brings to light in our hearts the things that he is requiring us to change. This process is, is a necessary part of our sanctification. It is a necessary part. Like the song that we sing often says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
Well, there's a danger on the other side of this test as well. And the danger would be that we look at ourselves in the mirror and we forget the gospel. And if we look at ourselves in the mirror and we forget the gospel, what do we see? Something that is really coming up short, right? Something that is really coming up far of far short of the glory of God. We feel that we aren't good enough and never will be good enough Christians. Now, I was talking to someone about this a week ago, and, and in their reflection, they were saying, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I'm doing it. I don't feel like I am good enough. There are times of doubt in a Christian's life, and there are plenty of times of self-doubt. And that is why having a proper understanding of the gospel is absolutely necessary. That's why we have to listen to the gospel and remind ourselves of the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves again and again and again and again. That's why we have to hear it every week. So what does Jesus do when we fall short, when we take that reflective look and we see we are very, very far from his glory? And hopefully that's what you see. Because if you take a self-reflective look and you feel like you're doing pretty good, we've got a whole other problem. What does Jesus do? Does he turn his head in disappointment? Does he turn his back on us at some point? Does, Does he grow weary of forgiving? Does he grow weary of you? Let me ask it this way. Where is the end to his mercy? Exactly where does it run dry? That's a fair question. But let's, that, let's ask that question of our Bibles. What would the scripture have to say about that? I'll mention a few. We find in 2 Corinthians that God is the Father of mercies. That's where we started, chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 2.4 says that he's rich in mercy and he has a great love for us. John 6.37 says that if we come to him, we will never be cast out. He sympathizes with our weakness, Hebrews 4.15. His love is unceasing and his mercies will never come to an end, Lamentations 3.22. He even takes joy in the process of forgiving you, Hebrews 12, verse 2. I could go on, and I'm tempted to, but to that sting that we feel, to that, that self-reflective, terrible feeling of coming up short, I'd say this. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. That means that your salvation started with Jesus, he who began a good work in you. And it's going to end with Jesus. He will bring it to completion. So the test of faith that we read in verse 5 then, for the believer... The test of faith is meant to produce two things, reliance and assurance. Reliance 
Because we are never good enough, we always come short. We have to lean on something bigger than we are. And assurance, because he is always holding on to us. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Paul's not done with us yet. Let's keep reading in verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. We mentioned before that Paul doesn't actually want to come into Corinth with guns blazing. Right? He doesn't desire or wish to kick anyone out of the church. Your restoration is what we pray for. In fact, he even says in verse 10 that this is the main reason for writing his letter, that he doesn't have to judge, but their restoration will be celebrated. You can hear the plea of his voice in his writing. The last thing he wants to do is exercise authority in judgment when he comes back. His authority is purposed for building up, not tearing down. Now, does that mean that he can't use it for removing people from the church? No. He'll do what needs to be done because, as he said in verse 8, we cannot do anything against the truth. Building up the church, in that case, would actually mean removing the unrepentant member. But Paul doesn't only plead with them. You see, he says something in in verse 9 here, and then before this in verse 7, I think is really important for us to see and dwell on and highlight. It's easily missed. Verse 7 says that he and his companions were praying that the Corinthians would do no wrong. And then it says in verse 9, they pray for the Corinthians' restoration. He doesn't plead just with them. He pleads with God in prayer. Now, in order for them to pray that the Corinthians would be reconciled and do no wrong, in order for their request to God would be that they would stop sinning, they have to believe that it is God who can stop us from doing wrong. It's a double appeal. He's appealing to the Corinthians to stop doing wrong, but also and primarily his appeal is to God in prayer that God would stop them from wrong, that God would cause their restoration. Now, it's really easy for Christians to forget how important prayer is, especially those of us who highlight the sovereignty of God again and again. We feel in our hearts that prayer might not be so compulsory. If God has ordained everything, if God is so in control, why would we feel the need to run in prayer? Why would we run to God in prayer? If God already knows who is his, why would we pray for anyone's salvation at all? 
But here we see one of the Bible's greatest teachers on the sovereignty of God pleading with God in prayer. One of the beautiful things that we see in the New Testament also is that Jesus himself invites us into this kind of supplication for others. This kind of intercessory prayer on behalf of others. It doesn't become untrue that God is in control of the future. But in prayer, he actually invites us to be a part of his sovereign choice. He answers the prayer of his people because he has chosen to answer prayers of his people. He's chosen to work out his will through the prayers of believers. But by allowing us, by by gifting us with the ability to ask and receive, then we as the body, we as Christians are included and then we're put into harmony with his will. It's not that God couldn't work in this world without our prayer, right? We should never think that. God is not waiting for us to pray so that he can act. He's not holding back until we say the right magic prayer and ask for the right magic thing. He's much more in control than that. It does not depend on us. But it's part of his sovereign plan that he determined that his people would pray and that he would answer. I hope and desire that that our church, that this church, would become known uh, as a people of prayer. I hope that we would be constantly lifting each other up in intercessory prayer. And I want to encourage you as you have discussions with people after and before services throughout the week in community groups, that instead of just saying, I'll pray for you, you stop and offer to pray right then. Because we forget. Be intentional with your prayer life. Go to Christ with your brothers and sisters. We need to, as a body, push into prayer more and more often. Because we have not yet begun to realize the power offered to us in prayer. We have not yet begun to realize the comfort and assurance offered to us in prayer. By handing off the things that we desire to God and putting them in His hands, we have a greater assurance. We need to lean into what is called weak After all, the world around us views prayer as weak. How many times have you seen online uh, people mocking prayers and thoughts? Why? Because they say it's weak. It's not actually doing anything. It's just thoughts or prayers offered up to the sky. So if worldly wisdom says that prayer is weak, and we are a people who rely on our weakness to reveal God's strength, it's a call to prayer seems to be the perfect thing for us to do. Prayer is exactly leaning on our weakness, admitting our weakness and simply saying, all we can do is ask for help in some situations. In situations like this, when we can pray that someone would stop doing wrong, that we would ask God to intervene and stop them from hurting themselves. That makes prayer the perfect picture of power in weakness. 
And Paul ends his letter in, in verse 11 with this benediction. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, typically, there's always a formal ending to a letter that sounds like this, especially in this time era. There is always a sign-off that sounds something like this. In the Greco-Roman culture, the, the ending of a letter would be similar. In any letter would be similar. But Paul's letters, even though he fits into that common practice, the endings to his letters are far more intentional than anything else in that era. There's even an entire book written on it called Neglected Endings, where they look at all of the endings of Paul's letters and how he summarizes his letter. So the main point I want to bring out, instead of a salutation and a simple greet each other, it's more than that. At the end, there are summaries of his teaching. Here is a great example of that. Paul uses the last few phrases to remind them of what is ultra-important for them. Now, first of all, addressing the Corinthians, he addresses them as brothers. That's important for us to notice. He says, finally, brothers. He continues, again, to use family terms. Not, not only those he loves, he's greeting everyone. He's also greeting the ones that he is calling out. He's calling them brothers because he is hopeful and confident that they will be brothers when he returns. He addresses the brothers then with five imperatives. Five things he, he wants to use his last lines of ink to communicate. And those are rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort each other, agree with each other, and live in peace. It's interesting that he uses the last few phrases to reinstate or to summarize not doctrinal truth, which he has gone at length to explain, but the practical actions. These things all have to do with the working out of the doctrinal truth. The application of it. So the first outworking then of, of right believing, he says, should be joy. Finally, brothers, rejoice. There's a lot of serious subjects and, I, and ideas that he has expressed throughout this letter, right? There's, there's been a, a lot of rebuke, cleaning up of accusations, teaching about sound doctrine, this reminds us that the sum, though, of all those things should be joy. And it might be the way that I'm wired, but I know some of you might be wired the same. It's, it's easy to get caught up in all the steps along the way and not see where you're going, right? It's easy for us to go, okay, step one, step two, do this, do that, and forget where we're headed. And if we stop and look at where we're headed, that should bring us joy. There's a lot of truth to apply in this letter, of course, as we go through. But he wants to remind us that we should primarily be categorized as a joyful people. And this should be the case now. The church, both at Corinth and at Communion Church, is a group of people who have received everything in Christ. Right? When, we, when we take that gospel message then and apply it to our situations, the response should be Joy. 
And then the rest of these imperatives are very church fellowship oriented. Obviously, he's, he's writing to the church, but these commands are not just for individuals, but as how individuals treat the church family and interact with the community around their church family. The church is to be a place that is filled with, peop- with people who are seeking restoration. Filled with people seeking restoration, not people who are eager to turn their backs on each other. It should be filled with people who are comforting each other. It should be filled with us coming to agreement with each other. And that could be difficult, right? And also, it should be filled with a people who are living peaceably in the community which God has put us in. All these together are really nice and almost obvious. But as we actually try to live them out, it's not that easy. It's not that easy to live in peace with all your coworkers. It's not that easy to always comfort people when you feel like you may have bigger problems than they do. It's not that easy to come to agreement with people who you know are wrong. (laughs) If we were to try and accomplish all of this through our best efforts, we will come up short of that. He's listed off some things that we can't do. These things are all accomplished by leaning in to God. If we were to try and accomplish this through our best efforts, we come up short, but look at the last half of verse 11. He lists these things, then he says, And the God of love and peace will be with you. As he reminded us in the first part of the chapter, Jesus Christ is in you. These things are all accomplished not by rolling up our sleeves, but they're accomplished by humbly leaning in and learning to rely on God who promised to be with us and then acting out of love and the confidence that that brings us. Before he sends greetings from the saints from where he is, he gives the very last imperative in the letter. He saves the very last one. Greet each other with a holy kiss. That's weird. Right? Are we supposed to go kissing each other now? Um, What does that mean for us? I've always taken this to be a common greeting for those who are friendly um, in the Greco-Roman era. Interestingly enough, one of the commentaries that I read on this passage actually mentioned that there's nothing to say that this was anything but strange then, too. However, greeting each other with a kiss was common then among family members. With your close family members, that was a common greeting. So what is he saying? He's saying that we should greet each other like we are close brothers and sisters. This makes the rest of the benediction make a little more sense, doesn't it? He starts by addressing them as brothers. And again, there's nothing I've seen or heard to say that this was anything other than strange as well. To call women sister and men brother is particular to the church. The grand picture that he is painting for them and for us is that the church is a family 
and should be known as such. It should be treated as such. A good family, then, is going to live peaceably with each other. They're going to aim for loving and comforting each other. They're going to aim to respect their parents. A good family is going to be focused on the same values, on the same mission. That truly is what the church should be. A family of brothers and sisters with the same loving father. It wasn't the apostles, it wasn't Paul who came up with this idea. But it isn't the same all the way through the Bible. It shows up with Jesus. It was Jesus who started calling his followers his brothers and sisters. He started using that terminology and it was weird then too. And then, if that wasn't enough, he started encouraging his followers to address God as Father. That was weird then as well. We get to see all along then that the family is actually a picture that God has painted for us from the beginning. The family and then the church is just another image or reflection of what God displays to us in the Trinity. In the last letters, that Trinity is spoken of very, very clearly. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So these three in one along with these three gifts, are inseparable. As we receive the grace that Jesus purchased us on the cross, we see the eternal love from God the Father. And we also then receive the fellowship that the Spirit gives us with each other. So then it's not just our fellowship that binds us, but it's actually the grace of Jesus and the eternal love of the Father that binds us as a family as well. That's what we do here week after week. We celebrate the grace of Jesus. We celebrate the love of God the Father. And we enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Not only with each other, but with God himself. Which makes this time both deeply personal and deeply communal. We worship together, we worship individually, we take communion together, and we take communion individually. It's deeply personal, deeply communal. Let's pray and then partake of our family meal in communion. Lord God, we are a favored and blessed people. We have received grace that we did nothing to merit. We have received love when we were unlovely. And we are gifted and given a fellowship with you and with our brothers and sisters that we absolutely need. Lord, I pray that as we move forward from this time in worship, in singing, in communion, 
that you would bless this time, that you would bless this family meal, that you would remind us what the grace of Jesus gave us, not only to us and definitely to us, but also to the people in the pews in front of us, behind us, next to us. We are a people who have been favored. We are a people who have been chosen. And we are greatly thankful for that. Lord God, bless this time. Let us glorify Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.